Hello and welcome to the very first episode of my podcast, The Most of It. I have been wanting to make this podcast for quite a few years now, so I'm really excited that we are finally here. This series is all about figuring out how to make the most of our lives, hence the title. (laughs) So I will be chatting to a range of different people who can all offer something to that conversation, whether that's through the work that they do or through the lessons that they have learnt themselves throughout the course of their own lives. And my hope is that by listening to these conversations, we might all deepen our understanding of ourselves and of the world around us, which will, in turn, I hope, enable us all to live a more engaged, meaningful and fulfilling life. So I hope you like it. This week, I have the pleasure of talking to author and very popular TED talker, Emily Esfahani-Smith, who has dedicated her working life to finding out what creates meaning in our lives. So the perfect guest for this podcast. Emily has recently written a book called The Power of Meaning, Finding Fulfillment in a World Obsessed with Happiness. And I am totally obsessed with it. The book is the result of years of research and it covers so much interesting ground, such as why the pursuit of happiness is misguided and why following our passions is not always the best idea, it turns out. Emily has instead discovered that there are pillars of meaning that really help us to feel connected and fulfilled and she talks about them all in such a relatable, practical manner. I found our conversation to be so inspiring and also just really encouraging as it affirms what's important in life and what we should be focusing on. So I really hope that you get as much out of our chat as I did. Emily, thank you so, so much for talking to me today. I have obviously read your book, The Power of Meaning, and I just absolutely love it. I feel like it is such an important book, and I would recommend anyone who is listening to this podcast to read it. I just got so much out of it. So first of all, thank you for writing it. I just think it is such an important piece of information for us all. Thank you so much. It's really, really kind of you to say. I'm so happy that it touched you in some way. Oh, yeah, it it really did. I was actually moved to tears a few times <laughs> reading it. I think just the, yeah, the recognition of our humanness that you write about, it was quite remarkable to me. So, Emily, you've really dedicated your career to studying meaning. What led you to this area? So I uh, went to get my master's degree a few years ago in a field called positive psychology, which is the study of the good life. So for a long time, psychology was concerned with all the things that can go wrong in human beings, depression, pessimism, neuroses. And over the last 20 to 30 years, psychologists have really Um, some psychologists anyways, have really turned their focus on trying to understand what goes well in the human experience and what are the conditions that allow things to go well. And some of the things that they study are topics like positive relationships, happiness, and meaning. And so I went to get my master's degree in positive psychology because I'd always been really interested in this question of, you know, what is a good life? what is a meaningful life? And in fact, when I went to my undergrad college, I 
studied philosophy, hoping to get some answers to this question, but then learned that philosophy departments uh, weren't really concerned with these big questions of human existence the way they were, you know, several hundred, several thousand years ago. So um, psychologists have really taken it up. And what I learned in the program really surprised me. We get so much messaging in cultures like, you know, where I am, where you are, about how happiness is the be-all, end-all of life. But what I learned is that actually when we pursue happiness with that kind of fervor, we actually end up feeling unhappy. And on top of that, it can make us feel lonely as well. And that finding is kind of in this broader context of rates of depression, rates of suicide, rates of loneliness and anxiety rising all across the population for the past few decades. And when psychologists look at, you know, what's driving this rising tide of despair, what they find is that it's not a lack of happiness in people's lives, but actually a lack of meaning. And so it really made me realize that meaning is something that's so important and that actually even though there's so much emphasis placed on happiness, that what people actually yearn for is to lead a meaningful life. And the happiness has kind of become this false, cheap substitute almost for it. So why do you think we are so obsessed with happiness? And have we always been like this? Or is it getting more and more so as time goes on? So definitely cultures that kind of grew out of Western civilization with, you know, going back to philosophers like Aristotle, this idea of leading a good life has always been part of the conversation. Aristotle talked about how the end of man is flourishing. And a lot of times that gets translated as happiness, but actually he meant something much deeper than happiness. He meant something like, you know, leading a life where you're living out your potential, where you're contributing to your to society. It's a very active life. It's more than just about your feeling states. And that was, you know, over 2000 years ago, you know, fast forward, you know, several hundred years ago in America, you have the Declaration of Independence where it says, you know, human beings are guaranteed the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so there's definitely this kind of thread running through Western civilization about the importance of happiness. And over time, what happiness meant, the definition of it changed a lot so that back in Aristotle's time, and even up to when the American founding fathers were writing things like the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, happiness was understood much more to mean what we today would think of as a meaningful life. So today, a lot of people, when they think about happiness, they think about positive feelings, positive emotional states. They think about that big yellow smiley face. That's not what happiness always meant um, throughout history. It really meant that deeper thing that Aristotle was talking about, you know, living a full life where you're in relationship, you're, you're living at your potential, you're contributing to society in the best way that you can. And it's only been in the last couple hundred years where happiness has become watered down to mean, you know, maximizing pleasure, positive feelings and minimizing negative feeling states. And I think that today, especially that interest in happiness has been really elevated for two reasons. One is positive psychology, in fact, which has produced so much research 
on the things that makes us happier. And so it's given kind of media and journalists and coaches and psychologists all kinds of material to write about and talk about as far as happiness goes. And the second is I think, you know, happiness is a pretty simple concept and it's a word that people can easily grasp onto, whereas a concept like meaning is a little bit more abstract, a little bit harder to understand. And indeed in, in the psychology research, it hasn't been studied as deeply as happiness. You know, if there's been, you know, a, a deep body of research on happiness that's gone back, you know, 20 years, the research on meaning has really only kind of emerged and come into its own in the, in the last decade. Yeah, I think that is such a interesting and good point you make that it's so much easier to define happiness and therefore attach a goal to that aim as opposed to meaning, which is is a far more abstract concept. So mm-hmm. are you able to give us a definition of meaning and explain why that is different to happiness? Absolutely. So the way that many psychologists and philosophers define happiness is as a positive mental and emotional state. So if you feel good, you're happy. And if you feel bad, you're unhappy. And I think that at face value, when people hear the term happiness, that's what they have in mind. Uh, meaning, though, is bigger. The way that you know many psychologists and philosophers define meaning is that it's leading a life where you're connected and contributing to something that's bigger than yourself. And when psychologists look at people who rate their lives as very meaningful, they find that they have three features in common. One, they believe their lives are significant. Uh, In other words, they believe their lives matter, that their lives have worth. Uh, Second, they believe their lives are driven by a sense of purpose or some goal or aim that, that moves them into the future that's meaningful to them and also meaningful to the world. And finally, they believe their lives are coherent, which is to say that things make sense to them. The world isn't just kind of a random accumulation of you know, sensory stimuli. Their own lives aren't just kind of a random accumulation of experiences, but that there's actually a story that we can tell about who we are, the world that we live in, and how we came to be this way. So these are the fundamental elements of being a human being, right? Like this is who we are. It feels like this is the way we are supposed to live our lives. And yet we've got so far away from that. Like so many people now, their goals, their biggest aims in life is to be rich or famous. And Mm -hmm. you didn't mention either of those things mm-hmm. with your discussion on meaning then. So why are we going after these goals that ultimately don't serve us? Yeah, it's, it's a really great question. I think that, you know, we have certain ticks in our mind that lead us to pursue and prioritize the wrong kinds of goals. You know, one of the things that our minds does constantly is compare ourselves to others. And so we see you know, we go on Instagram, we see celebrities, the glamorous lives they're leading. We see people who are wealthy and all the cool trips that they're taking. You know, we want that or we feel inadequate because we don't have that. So there are these kind of features of our mind that push us to pursue goals that actually, the pursuit of which the research shows can actually make us, you know, quite unhappy, make us feel like our lives aren't meaningful. And I think that also the broader culture supports the pursuit of those goals, you know, especially if you live in kind of 
urban educated environments. There's a lot of emphasis on choosing jobs that are prestigious, that make a lot of money versus, you know, maybe the kind of career that's a little bit more risky, but truer to who you are and to what you feel your purpose is. So there's kind of the internal forces that are pushing us to pursue goals like fame and wealth and status and and success. And then the external forces as well that are pushing us in that direction. It's a folly, isn't it? I mean, people who we perceive to have glamorous lives, they don't have more meaningful lives, right? Can we say that for the record? <laughs> no, I think I think that's absolutely right. And in fact, you know, it's like I kind of was alluding to earlier, a lot of times people who have, you know, prioritized, you know, fame and wealth and therefore, you know, eventually accomplished achieving those things do end up unhappy or feeling like their lives are less meaningful because they reach a point where they actually realize that the pursuit of those things isn't what life's about. And so they're actually maybe a little further behind on the search for meaning than someone leading a more ordinary life who didn't pursue fame, wealth, and whatnot, and um, was more concerned with kind of filling his or her life with things that make it meaningful. Yeah. So it's like the fame and the wealth are incidental and irrelevant. Like if they arise from the pursuit of a meaningful life, then that person will have a meaningful life. But if they are the end result, then you're going in the wrong direction. Yeah, exactly. And and in psychology, they kind of, this is like distinguished by referring to like things like fame and wealth as extrinsic goals and things like meaning and relationships and growth as intrinsic goals. And so if you pursue intrinsic goals, you're a lot better off than if you pursue these extrinsic goals. Great. We've got that on the record. (laughs) (laughs) One of my favorite quotes from your book is from someone who has uh, terminal cancer and was going through a program to find meaning in in the face of death, find meaning in their lives. And they said what they realized is I didn't have to work so hard to find the meaning of life. It was being handed to me everywhere I looked. And this really struck me because I think often when we think about what is the meaning of life? We think we might have to go and live on top of a mountain by ourselves Mm -hmm. for the rest of our lives. And there we will discover the stuff of life. But fortunately for us all, (laughs) in fact, that's not the case. And you've found that there are four pillars of meaning that are in fact all around us. So perhaps we might go through those four pillars one by one, if that's all right. Sure. Um, So the pillars are belonging, purpose, transcendence, and storytelling. And, you know, I'll just kind of briefly mention, define each of them. So belonging is about being in relationships where you feel like you matter to others and where other people treat you like you matter to them as well. Uh, Purpose I mentioned earlier, but it's about having kind of goals and aspirations and aims that are both meaningful to you and meaningful to the world. In other words, that they're meaningful to you, but they also make some sort of contribution to the world to help move things forward a little bit in big ways or in small ways. Transcendence, and this is the this woman's story about terminal cancer, whom you mentioned, um, her story appeared in the transcendence chapter. But these are those experiences where you feel lifted above the hustle and bustle of daily life kind of the world of ordinary experience, ordinary consciousness, and suddenly are connected to something 
bigger, something higher that feels more sacred. And a lot of times, you know, this happens for people in nature, they're walking in the woods or on, you know, they come across a beautiful vista and their sense of self begins to dissolve a little bit and they feel more connected to the world around them. Their kind of worries and anxieties melt away and they feel in the presence of something larger. Storytelling, I also briefly alluded to earlier, and this pillar is really about uh, the story that you tell yourself about yourself, about how you became the person that you are today. And a lot of times, you know, we're kind of creating this story without realizing it. And the story that we tell uh, can have deep and, and important consequences for how we live our lives and perceive our lives. If we're telling kind of a negative story, it can hold us back. If we're telling a more hopeful story, it can move us forward. And we all have the ability to change our stories, even while we you know, respect the facts of our lives, to tell a story that's more hopeful and generative if we are telling one that's currently more negative. I found the storytelling aspect really interesting, and I wonder if it's one that people wouldn't necessarily think about, because we do often think of our lives as objective reality and not something that's open to interpretation. You know, things happen to us and we mm-hmm. respond in a certain way, and it it's often feels like there's a certain sense of inevitability about it. Mm-hmm. But what what you're saying is that there is no objective reality and our life is constantly an active exercise in interpreting the events that happen to us. We are the author of our own lives much more than we think. So what this means is we can interpret something that happens to us in a negative way or a positive way. We either suffer from it meaninglessly or it's something that that we can grow from. Okay, so we know that we should interpret our life in a, in a way that's useful and positive. But what if we, despite knowing that's true, we can't? Is there a fake it till you make it aspect that can work in this way? There's certainly a lot of evidence to suggest that people can change their stories if they work at it, even if in the beginning they think that they won't be able to. But if they do things like go to therapy, like what therapy really is in in many cases anyways, is getting people to kind of change that negative story they're telling about their lives or through journaling. There's a lot of research about how if you journal for, you know, three days in a row for, you know, 15 to 20 minutes about an upsetting experience in your life that over time you developed uh, more meaning about the experience you, um, you are able to find positive meaning, some ways that you grew, for example, as a result of what happened. And so your story um, begins to shift as opposed to you know having a story that was like, this thing happened, it was so awful, it ruined my life. The story maybe becomes more like this thing happened, it was so awful, I thought it was going to ruin my life, but then it led me to discover you know, what my new purpose is or, or something like that. That's kind of a, when I was interviewing people, that was like a very common type of story that I, that I heard. So you can do things to actually change your story. And in terms of faking it till you make it, I know that uh, the American psychologist William James did allude to the power of something like that, you know, talking about how, you know, if you move through the world with a positive mannerisms, like your, you know, posture is good and you're, you have this openness to the world, um, you'll eventually start feeling that inside of you. So it actually, the way you act can actually transform how you feel. We tend to think of it as the opposite way, how we feel, um, 
affects how we act. And I think, you know, it, it moves in both directions, but maybe we don't pay enough attention to that more counterintuitive thing, which is that, it, you know, there is something about kind of faking it till you make it, let's say. Um, maybe that's true of storytelling as well. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. That's a good, encouraging thing to know. Mm-hmm. Since storytelling is a somewhat abstract and potentially new concept, are you just able to give an example of what storytelling means and how we can use this? Perhaps someone you talk to in your book? So when we think about storytelling, there's kind of two scales at which we can kind of tell the stories about our lives. There's the kind of grand narrative arc, the grand myth of our lives. It has to do with who we are, uh, how we got to be that way, where we're from, where we're going. This kind of, you know, if we were in a novel, let's say the main character in a novel, this would be the story that we were telling with different segments of our lives representing different chapters. Then there are the stories that we tell every single day about the discrete things that happen to us. So for example, um, if you get an email from your boss that says in the subject line, call me as soon as you can. And then you open the email and there's nothing in the, in the body of the email, just that subject line, call me as soon as you can. What's the story that you immediately start telling about that? Is it, oh my God, I'm in trouble. I'm going to be fired. Or is it maybe he wants to assign me a new project. Maybe I'm going to get promoted. So that's kind of an example of just how we kind of day to day are, are telling stories about the things that happen to us. Great. So I guess a really important first step on this storytelling um, road is to actually recognize that we are telling ourselves stories. I think that's right. Yeah. And I think that, you know, as you kind of mentioned earlier, that this, and I found this too, that this particular pillar tends to be surprising to people. And I think it's precisely because we don't always realize that we are the authors of our own stories and can therefore actually change the way that we're telling them. And so making that recognition, I do think is a really important first step. And it enables us to then reflect more deeply about what kinds of stories we're telling. Are they stories that we like? If they're not, can we change them? How do we go about doing that? Yeah, it seemed to me that it's about what's useful to us on on a practical level. Is this story, is this interpretation of a particular set of events useful? Is it helping us or is it not? If it's not, then how do I look at changing this? I think that's right. I mean, I think that, you know, there's certainly, you always want to kind of respect what happened and, you know, acknowledge painful circumstances for how they are. And sometimes that means encountering, you know, really hard parts of yourself or hard memories or hard experiences and maybe just encountering those difficulties, those, you know, memories of trauma, whatever it may be, that in itself might not be helpful. I think it's still important to kind of face those kinds of thoughts and memories and experiences head on. But then thinking about, okay, given that this happened, what do I do now? Like, how am I going to move forward in my life How am I going to carry this particular experience with me into the future? And there, I think, is when you do want to start thinking about what's going to be most helpful to me. How how can I live my life in a way that's not sabotaging it, but that's actually contributing both to myself and to others? That's such a good point. So it's not about being Pollyanna and pretending to yourself or getting into a state where nothing's affecting you and you're saying, oh no, everything's fine. I have no issues anywhere. It's it's acknowledging what's going on. But then the next step is of 
yeah, interpreting that information and whatever decides your next steps in the most useful way. Exactly. That's right. Exactly. Uh, yeah, I think that's a really, really interesting point that I hadn't thought too much about. So I, I imagine other, there might be other people <laughs> in the same boat as me. It's a, a really, really useful one. So uh, going back one step, one pillar to transcendence, the experience of being part of something bigger than yourself. It seems like people who are religious or spiritual might have an easier time of this. Is that correct? Yeah, I think that's like a really fair hypothesis. And I would have thought that too, but I don't know if that's necessarily true. And and now that I've kind of done more research, there's this whole growing body of people who describe themselves as spiritual, but not religious, who are probably the ones out there who are most in touch with transcendence. A lot of people who are religious aren't necessarily religious in a way that fosters transcendence. And maybe that's just not an interest of theirs, or maybe it is, and they, they don't know how to kind of, you know, achieve it in their particular religious setting. But I think that because there is such a strong spiritual sense in everyone, and because our culture is growing increasingly secular, that we might actually find that people um, who are not as religious are a little bit more in tune with how to experience transcendence, like, you know, going out into nature, you know, some people experiment with kind of mind altering drugs, going to concerts, listening to music, all these different ways. With that said, I think there are some really powerful portals to transcendence that are absolutely achieved within a religious framework, whether it's prayer, meditation, going to a service, taking part in a liturgy and a ritual. These are all really powerful ways to experience transcendence as well. And why is transcendence so important? So transcendence, these experiences, and these experiences exist, I should say, on a spectrum. So you can have like, you know, kind of more minor everyday experiences where you maybe it's listening to a piece of music or having a moment in nature and you kind of feel, you know, a little bit elevated You can also have major transcendent experiences where you completely lose your sense of self and feel, you know, these oceanic uh, feelings of oneness with the universe that the woman who had terminal cancer, she had experienced one of those experiences of transcendence. And that's what ultimately helped her be at peace with her death. But irregardless, both types of experiences put people into touch with something that is bigger than themselves. They both cause people to lose their own sense of self a little bit, to feel a little bit smaller, and to become aware of how small they are in the vast scope of the universe. This can be a really, uh, you know, frightening realization, realizing that you're just a tiny speck, you know, in this vast grand cosmos. But at the same time, it inspires awe in people and it makes them realize that even though they're really small, they're also part of something bigger. And recognizing that they're part of this bigger, mysterious thing is what ultimately brings that sense of comfort and consolation. Just thinking it's that experience that astronauts have, isn't it, when they're looking back at this tiny blue planet that is Earth and realizing the oneness of everything. Oh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I write about that in my book a little bit about, yeah, I interviewed this one astronaut who did go up into space and saw the earth from space and realized that here on earth, we kind of think of ourselves in groups and countries, border separating countries. When you're out in space, you don't see any borders. You just see kind of one 
big continuous mass. And the astronaut who I interviewed uh, talked about how that really was an awe-inspiring experience for him and made him realize that the earth itself is so small and and so fragile. And um, yet it's all we know is life. And so it really kind of affected the shift in consciousness for him. Mm. How can we cultivate transcendence in our day-to-day lives? I think, you know, meditation is a really powerful way, mindfulness meditation, but there's all kinds of different forms of meditation. Prayer and meditation are kind of same versions, I think, of each other. They're just a little bit different. I think that's also a way to experience transcendence. I think probably the most accessible way for people is in nature, you know, going through the woods, you know, looking at a beautiful seascape or river or a little stream, bird watching, things like that. Um, These are all ways to experience transcendence. Great. Thank you. Uh, So one step further back, purpose. This is a really interesting topic and I, I really loved the way you wrote about it and what it made me think about because there is so much parlance these days about follow your passion, follow your bliss. But there is, in fact, a school of thought that suggests that might not be the best way forward. Are you able to talk a bit about that? Yeah. So we do get a lot of advice about, you know, following your passions. And I think even beyond that too, there's this sense in our culture that you have to find your capital P purpose uh, in order to live a meaningful life. It's this kind of big ultimate thing that you have to figure out and then devote the rest of your life, life to. But actually, you know, purpose comes in all shapes and sizes and it can change over the course of our lives. So, you know, one person's purpose at one phase of life might be to become the best artist that they can be. At another phase, it's to be, you know, a really good parent to their child. Being a parent is something that came up a lot in the interviews uh, for a lot of parents, their children, you know, that that's one of their fundamental sources of purpose. And again, that's like an everyday form of purpose. It's not some grand, you know, vision for their lives. It's not something like, you know, curing cancer or ending world hunger, but just these kind of local everyday ways that we can serve others and roles that we play in the world that bring us purpose. So often purpose is connected with what we do with our jobs because we spend so much time at our place of work. What if people are not in their ultimate dream job? They don't feel like they have passion or purpose with their job. Is there a way of reframing that approach? I think there is. You know, one of the things that I, I looked at when I was researching my book was precisely that question. And it turns out that, you know, when you look at people who do rate their jobs as super meaningful, it's people who are doing the work of service in one way or another. So educators, doctors, therapists, clergy, people like that. And what this tells us is that there's something about service that is very purposeful. And at the same time, every job has some kind of service component because every job exists to fill some need in the world. And so, you know, figuring out what need it is that your job fills and connecting the things that you do day to day to that is one way to kind of build purpose. So, um, you know, there's a study of coupon processors of women working in a coupon processing factory in Mexico. And the ones who saw their job as a way to support their families had a stronger sense of purpose. So the purpose that you find can be intrinsic to the work itself, but it can also be something that transcends the work. And what about people 
who have just lost their jobs, which unfortunately is a lot of people at the moment, given these strange times that we're in. How can they go about finding purpose? Something like that is never easy. But those kinds of experiences of loss, of rejection, where you do feel like you are either not in control or some form of purpose has been taken away, are really good opportunities to pause and reflect and reset and see, you know, is this the path that you want to be on? Maybe there's another path that you want to take. And the kind of break that the loss of the job provides is a way that allows people to kind of shift to a new direction if they were on a path that wasn't so true to themselves. Yeah, that's a really good point. And perhaps start thinking of this idea of being in service and and following that and knowing that that actually is what is going to make a positive impact in their experience of their own lives, which is, I think, possibly sometimes counterintuitive, isn't it? (laughs) Looking after the needs of others is actually how we look after ourselves as well. Uh, And so the final pillar belonging. It sort of feels obvious because we are social creatures and relationships are obviously important. But uh, what I found really quite remarkable was that it's not only the importance of having close relationships, but also the more incidental ones in our lives. We can create meaning there too. Yeah, exactly. So of course, like the major relationships in our lives uh, can be sources of belonging. Belonging is, you know, about being cared for, feeling like you matter to others. There are also these kind of smaller, looser social bonds that we have with others all, you know, every day, whether it's, you know, walking by a neighbor and making eye contact and saying hello or uh, interacting with the grocery clerk, things like this. And it turns out that these can be really powerful builders of belonging because they oftentimes, you know, if you kind of walk by someone, you don't acknowledge them, they don't acknowledge you, or you go to the grocery store and you treat the teller just like, you know, this is some kind of transaction and they treat you that way. It's very uh, transactional. And and we often leave those experiences feeling kind of unseen, feeling ignored, having our sense of belonging threatened a little bit. But when you turn towards those moments and kind of make a little micro connection, whether it's something as small as just making eye contact and smiling, making some small talk, asking someone how they're doing, those can lift people's spirits and both people end up, you know, walking away feeling a little bit more elevated. And we can really cultivate that, can't we? If we just keep that in our minds, we can practice that every day in every interaction. Yeah, every interaction is an opportunity to build this pillar. Great. Thank you so much for that. So I guess my final question about meaning then is how do we find meaning in crisis? The world right now is in a very, very difficult position and a lot of people are facing very uncertain futures, gone through a lot of loss and grief. How can we approach what is happening in the world at the moment from a meaning-making perspective? There's a lot of ways that people can make meaning through crisis, but I'll just mention one of them. And you know, I talk more at length in my book about some of the others, but I think one of the ones that's really almost, you know, simple, something that we we can all do that maybe it's deceptively simple because it's actually a little harder to actually do it when you're in the thick of something hard is, you know, asking yourself, you know, how is this experience changing you? What did you lose from it? But also what did you gain? What positive things came into your life uh, that weren't there before as a result of what you're experiencing? Is it a deeper sense of wisdom? a deeper sense of self-knowledge? Did your relationships with others deepen a little bit? 
what did you gain? Was there some kind of silver lining that you can identify? So it's taking the time to really reflect on that and knowing that there always is meaning there to be gained. That's right. Exactly. And, and it's like you said earlier, we there's the objective reality that we're all living in, but then we're constantly making meaning around it, adding our interpretations to it. You know, this is like something we do without even realizing it. And so becoming aware of that process and really deliberately and intentionally asking yourself, what is the meaning I'm trying to make here? What is the meaning I'm making is a way to kind of find some good during these crises. Yeah, great. Thank you so much. Well, I just think, again, your, your book is so important and powerful because it's really practical. And once we know that meaning is the thing we should be seeking, it's actually relatively easy to get it if we follow these four pillars, which have been researched so well by you. And those are the things that are going to make a positive difference on our lives. So thank you so much, Emily. I, I ask all of my guests uh, three questions. So if we can finish with those, if you don't mind. So the first one is, what is the most significant lesson that you've learned? I think the most significant lesson that I've learned is that there is always some sort of good or some sort of hope to be found in any situation beautiful. What is something you feel that you still have to learn? There's so much. Um, but I think, (laughs) I think, you know, becoming good at relationships, becoming good at loving someone that's a lifelong challenge and, and task and journey. Beautiful. And how do we make the most out of our lives? I think, you know, by doing everything that we can to lead a meaningful life. And oftentimes that really comes down to just, you know, being in the world with a spirit of generosity and and love. Thank you so much. And again, I would encourage everyone to read Emily's book. It is fantastic. And there is actually a quiz on Emily's website, which I'll put in the show notes, uh, where you can find what is your most important pillar of meaning, which is uh, really useful because then it shows you what's um, sort of innately most important to you, but also what you can work on, what the other pillars you might, might need a bit of work in your life. So thank you so much, Emily, and good luck for all your future projects. I can't wait to read the next thing that you put out there. Um, thanks so much for taking the time today. Thanks, Antonio. It was really great speaking to you. So there we have it. If we just follow those simple guidelines, we all can live a meaningful life. And wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? I really hope you enjoyed today's episode and got a lot out of it. I know that I most certainly did. So if you did enjoy it, uh, please remember to rate, review and subscribe to The Most of It as it will help others to find us. And thank you so much to my mates at Raw Collective for producing. Till next time.